All right, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Annalise Show. I am your host, Annalise Garcia. Today, we have a fantastic show for you guys. We're going to be interviewing Shervin Azami. He is a congressional candidate in uh, California's 30th district. Um, so first, I want to update you guys on some of the stuff that's been going on. So as you guys know, we were supposed to interview Shervin a few weeks back. Unfortunately, as you guys know, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And um, the day that I was supposed to interview Shervin, I actually ended up having to take her to the ER and all of you in LA. So I'm really happy to finally be able to have Mon and have this conversation. Um, I do want to give you guys some updates before we get started. So keep in mind, we do have the Annalise uh, show website up now. You can find it at Annalise.com. And there you can sign up for our newsletter so you can find out when we're having shows like this. And you can also contribute to the show, watch videos, all kinds of cool stuff. So check that out. I also wanted to remind you guys that we are now officially on Rockfin, which is super exciting. So if you are watching on YouTube right now, um, I want you to go ahead and go to Rockfin and watch us there because YouTube has been censoring a bunch of your favorite lefties and independent news and media. They are demonetizing people. And so what I'm going to be doing moving forward is the first few minutes of our live streams will also air on YouTube, but then they will be cut off and only be available on our other channels because fuck YouTube. That's why. <laughs> so uh, we're going to be doing that. So if you're, if you're ready for this interview, go ahead and hop on over to Rockfin. Watch us there. It's totally free. It's ad-free. And they're not going to censor independent media like they do on YouTube. So with that being said, let me make sure we are live everywhere. Okay, we are definitely live on YouTube. And let me check Rockfin to make sure that we are live on there. It's only my second time live streaming to Rockfin, so I just wanna make sure we've got everything going. Perfect, there we are. Okay guys, so we are about to turn off the YouTube stream, so head on over to Rockfin to watch us completely free. Let me just check that YouTube is now off and we will get started. And I know it's crazy, guys, but, you know, we got to do something with all of the with all of the uh, censorship that we're seeing uh, websites like YouTube and Patreon, you know, uh, do we got it. We got to stay on top of it and show them that we're not playing around. All right. So we are now off of YouTube live on Rockfin. We are ready to start our show. Uh, Shervin, thank you so, so much for being here. Welcome to the Annalise show. Hey there, Annalise. Can you hear me? Okay. I sure can. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. And first and foremost, I am so sorry to hear about your mom. Wishing her a full and speedy recovery. Thank you. Yeah, it. I I hated having to. I I remember I messaged you and I was like, dude, I'm so sorry. No, you have <laughs> zero reason to apologize. Zero reason to apologize. Oh. No, I really appreciate it. I'm really happy to have you on. So let's let's jump right in. So. You are running for the 30th Congressional District in California, right. which is in Los Angeles. So first, tell me a little bit about who you are, your background, and what got you interested in politics? 
I'd be happy to. And again, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you to all of your viewers. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here with you. You know, like, like most folks, um, a life in politics was not what I set out dreaming for. Um, I am the son of two uh, Iranian-American immigrants who fled religious persecution in Iran at the time of the revolution. Uh, they emigrated to Italy with nothing but the clothes on their backs and created a life for themselves there. And after about 15 years, uh, they immigrated to Los Angeles, the San Fernando Valley, um, this time with a kid, myself, as an infant. And they started all over from scratch. Uh, my father was a, a physician in Italy. Uh, when we moved out over here, his license was not accepted, and so he went back to school. And my mom was the one who made ends meet for us. She worked seven days a week, uh, weekends, holidays, birthdays, whenever it was, um, in retail at a, a local Macy's that has now been shut down. Uh, when my dad went back to school to become a family doctor. And we had the privilege of having my grandparents out here uh, who did most of the work raising me uh, while my parents were out there trying to make a living, trying to survive. And the amount of sacrifices they made, the amount of work they put into creating a life for themselves. You know, I always say I learned the, the power of responsibility from my mother and the power of service from my father. And it was right around when I was in college uh, that my dad opened his, his primary care practice here in the Valley. Uh, he's one of the only doctors here in the Valley that provides immigration physical exams for folks, um, which is a huge, huge need. Um, in Los Angeles, all across California, but in our district especially, uh, we're just under 40% of our residents are Latinx. Yeah. And we have a huge population of undocumented neighbors. Um, and I know we'll probably talk about um, ICE raids and deportation and militarization of our border uh, later in the show. But, um, you know, I've always fought for social justice through the lens of public health. You know, I started out in college joining student groups advocating for climate justice by addressing the, the health impacts of toxic urban runoff on our low-income communities of color here in LA. Um, from there, I worked at a residential treatment center uh, close to the Grove, where I heard powerful stories about how our, our healthcare system criminalizes mental health, criminalizes substance use. And we treat these issues as issues within our criminal justice system, as opposed to being inherently public health issues we have to address through care and healing and community investment. Right. And the head psychiatrist at that center had a zero tolerance policy when it came to drug use. Um, and most of the folks who live there were mandated to do so as part of their parole. And so guess what? If you're caught using drugs, you're in violation of your parole, you're going back to prison. And so it perpetuates that racist pipeline and those high recidivism rates that we see. And, you know, after doing that work in substance use, I, I moved over to the Bay Area where I was doing HIV prevention work uh, with an LGBTQ plus organization in San Francisco, doing harm reduction work, syringe exchange, setting up folks for Medicaid, um, and uh, creating inroads uh, with the city so that our Latinx populations were getting access to free HIV services, uh, free HCV or hepatitis C testing, um, condoms, all kinds of resources. And, you know, from there, I, I applied to AmeriCorps, continued down the public health war, uh, specifically on HIV prevention, and got more involved in policy. 
Uh, when, when I became the HIV screening coordinator for the city health department, my job was building bridges uh, between the city and local communities of color uh, to ensure that black and brown teenagers had access to free health screenings, contraceptives, and other resources. And it was throughout that work as a, a public health program specialist, as an organizer, there are always these limitations in the work that I wanted to do. Yeah. We wanted to set up a free health screening, but we couldn't do it in that part of town. Or there were always funding limitations. Or because of certain policies at the city, state, or federal level, we couldn't implement programs that we knew the community wanted and that we knew would lead to better health outcomes. There are always these barriers in place. And the barriers were always outside of the control of the local community and what local community members knew was best for their neighbors to be able to build healthy environments. And that's when I started learning more about the way policy influences the outcomes within our communities and how all of these systems, everything from institutional racism to lack of access to healthcare, education, clean air and water, all of these things are failures of institutions by design. And that's when I started working more in the policy sphere and got a job with the National Indian Health Board and quickly became our, our legislative director on Capitol Hill, where I was leading efforts to ensure the federal government honors its treaty obligations to tribal nations when it comes to healthcare specifically. And I was doing that work right at the height of COVID-19, which was disproportionately impacting our indigenous communities, where we're seeing death rates, uh, infection rates, and hospitalization rates three, four, five, six times higher than the general population. And a community that is chronically underinvested, and we said especially with healthcare, where the agency created by the federal government as a result of treaty obligations after our government committed genocide against indigenous peoples, violently displaced some of the ancestral homelands to make room for white settlers and be able to um, completely exploit their natural resources, lands and waters for capital gain. They created the Indian Health Service as a result of those treaty obligations in, the 1950, in 1955. And to this day, it's the most chronically underfunded healthcare agency we have. We always talk about how the United States spends more than any other country in the world on healthcare, and that's true. And we see incredibly lower healthcare outcomes despite that higher spending of roughly 12,000 per person. But within the Indian health system, it's a third of what? Less than four grand per person in the IHS system. And last year, as we were doing advocacy on Capitol Hill around COVID-19, that was the first time in US history that Congress appropriated dollars directly to tribal governments to respond to a public health pandemic. Prior to that, even during H1N1, the United States government sent tribes body bags as opposed to vaccines and testing kits. So we saw that change happen through our advocacy work. We saw laws passed through our advocacy work that canceled copays and deductibles for Native American veterans, getting us one step closer to something like single payer Medicare for all. We did advocacy work that led to long-term funding for community health centers that provided millions of dollars annually to communities on the front lines of the opioid crisis. And this is stuff that I'm proud of, but we are so far past incremental changes and band-aids on bullet wounds. 
Right. Especially here in Los Angeles. And I think about the fact that we've had the same representation for 24 years from a corporate Democrat, one of the most hawkish pro-war corporate Democrats we have, who has failed to represent us on the issues that matter and has continued to occupy our seat in Congress on behalf of those corporations. While we have five unhoused residents dying per day in our city, while we have over a thousand uncapped oil wells spewing noxious chemicals into our Latinx and black neighborhoods, while over 80% of the men incarcerated in our local jails are black or Latino, while we had the, na the largest natural gas leak in U.S. history in our district at Aliso Canyon, the largest nuclear meltdown in U.S. history in our district at the Santa Susana Field Lab. All of these issues coalescing, and I think we are a safely progressive, very, very progressive district. Bernie won our district during the presidential primary. There is zero reason beyond corporate greed and political cowardice that our representative can't be taking the bold stances each and every single day to enact the structural institutional reforms we need to actually uplift and empower working people, dismantle white supremacy, and end corporate welfare. We have to do that work, and I've done that work, and I'm proud to lead that work now with and on behalf of our community here in the West San Fernando Valley. Yeah, well said. I love everything you're saying. Um, and you know, it's it's great, first of all, that you're talking about indigenous communities because um, I had Chase Iron Eyes on my show um, a couple months back, and he's the co-founder of Last Real Indians. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we were talking about <clears throat> uh, we were talking about indigenous rights and reparations because the truth is when we talk about reparations, um, you know, it needs to be for African Americans and indigenous peoples because yes. one group we stole land from we literally stole the country from them and the other group we built the country off of their free labor yep, yep. so stolen we, land stolen bodies that's what built america exactly so we really need to talk about you know what we need to do to make things right with these communities and the thing is we can say that racism is over all we want but when you look historically at the lack of opportunities that these marginalized communities have had, the lack of opportunity to get education, the lack of opportunity to build wealth. I mean, 40 acres and a mule, right? And that never yep. happened. Yep. And so yep. I do think that it's time to really look at these communities and say, you know what? We, we need to do reparations and we need to do them now. And I know that's going to make a lot of people uncomfortable, but you know what else made people uncomfortable? Slavery. That was kind of uncomfortable. So, you know, we got to we got to come to terms with that instead of slavery followed by Jim Crow, followed by mass incarceration. Exactly. Continuously trying to brush it under the rug like, oh, it's not a thing anymore. Like, yes, it is a thing. Um, and, I, and I also uh, the fact that you touched on that your family's from Iran. I, I definitely want to get into uh, foreign policy with you. So let's jump right yes. into that, because I was born in Cuba. And so for me, foreign policy is very personal, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things mm -hmm. that I love about my mm -hmm. show is I've been having a lot of congressional candidates and local candidates on, and many of them are either immigrants or have immigrant family members. And I do believe that that gives them a, a, a special perspective 
uh, maybe sometimes even a broader perspective on the world and how it works. And so one of the biggest issues I have with the way that the U.S. handles foreign policy is the hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is uh, we are perfectly comfortable doing these regime change wars or wars for, for natural resources like oil, which we shouldn't even be using to begin with. And mm -hmm. we go in there and we destabilize these regions. We send our troops and our tanks in there when there's no way in a million years that we would be cool with another country doing that to us. And, you know, specifically when it comes to Cuba, where I was born, I, I always find it funny that, you know, we can we can trade and, and, and do and sell billions of dollars in arms to Saudi Arabia, but somehow Cuba's a problem and Cuba's a terrorist state. And still nobody will explain to me why that is. Yep. And so yep. in the middle of yep. a pandemic, we are sanctioning to death countries like Cuba and Iran. Yep. So can you touch yep. a little bit on, on your family's experience, the hardship that Iranians are going through? I would love uh, to. And because of the U.S. I, I would love to. Um, because when you think about the, the impact of centuries of oppression and displacement and interventionism and imperialism and modern-day colonialism, all to maximize corporate profit. It's not about diplomacy. It's not about human rights. The focus, the overwhelming outcome is to maximize corporate profits. Because think about what usually leads to these kinds of interventions. I'll give the example of Iran. In 1953, the only democratically elected leader in Iranian history, Mohammad Mossadegh, was deposed by the CIA. Why? Because he nationalized the oil industry. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And, you know, 20, uh, 24, 25 years later, we have the Iranian revolution. And my, my family's all Baha'i. That's a religious minority. And the Baha'is were openly persecuted and oppressed in Iran. My family can share stories about friends and colleagues that were hung in the streets. Uh, the name that my family is from in Iran had uh, its name changed and destroyed because it was clear that it was a Baha'i stronghold. Uh, there are no holy sites left for the Baha'is in Iran. And I think about the impact of these sanctions, and I think about the fact that the Iranian diaspora is here in Los Angeles. Los Angeles has the largest community of Iranians outside of Iran lovingly referred to as Tarantulas. Yet our congressman, Brad Sherman, still touts the fact that he was one of 19 corporate Democrats to vote against diplomacy in voting against the Iran deal. He still touts the fact that he is a proud supporter of economic sanctions. Economic sanctions, which have done nothing to reduce the stranglehold of the Iranian regime, which have done nothing to reduce the Iranian regime's financing of terrorist groups outside of Iran, which is what all these politicians say is the point of these sanctions. And yet, to your point, Anels, who do, you, who do we actually see? Not only who do we actually see be impacted? The Iranian people. Under inflation rates, they're making the cost of bread a thousand times higher than they were several years ago. These sanctions are doing nothing to achieve any kind of diplomatic outcomes. They're doing nothing 
to actually inspire the Iranian people. You want to change these despotic regimes, empower the people in that country, invest in human rights, right. invest in actual humanitarianism, invest in public health. Don't invest in economic sanctions. Don't invest in arms deals that do nothing to help the people on the ground, but prop up our military industrial complex and put billions more in the coffers of contractors that are controlling our entire military system. We saw the Biden administration release a budget that increases the defense spending by 13 billion. That's policy violence. And here at the local level, we see Mayor Garcetti, after the year Los Angeles has had, release a budget that increases the LAPD budget to over 3 billion. Yep. While we see homelessness, be, we can eradicate homelessness in America with 10% of the Pentagon budget. I am so sick and tired of politicians and other folks alike saying, well, where are you going to pay for it? Where are you going to pay for it? Where are you going to pay for it? Well, we're going to pay for it by the $649 billion we're providing in subsidies to the oil and gas industry every single year. We're going to pay for it by the $749 billion we're pumping into a military industrial complex each and every single year. We're going to pay for it by closing the loopholes that allow Amazon and IBM and Chevron to completely dodge any tax liability and pay $0 in federal income tax. We're going to pay for it by ensuring that people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, two people that have more wealth than the bottom 40% of Americans, making sure they pay their fair share. That's how we pay for it. I, I am so, this is, this is literally what policy violence looks like. Right. When our legislators continue propping up the very systems of oppression that are destroying our communities and then saying we don't have the money to actually fix the problems. It all boils down to priorities and budgets absolutely reflect priorities. I'm a firm believer in that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because they use that same argument for Medicare for all. And it always yeah. drives me crazy because it's like the question is, how are we paying for the current system? Because it's more expensive. The so, question is, why can't we implement a recall? What is stopping us? Exactly. How can we not? COVID-19 has to be our clarion call for single payer Medicare for all. We had millions and millions of people lose their employer sponsored health care coverage. That should immediately tell us how ridiculous it is that we tie healthcare to employment. It's absurd. And it causes people to stay in jobs they don't want to keep. It keeps people from being able to rise economically. And we take away from employers reinvesting that money and higher pay for their employees as well. We can, this is a win-win for employees and small business owners alike to take that burden off of small business employers, take that burden off of the employees, and make healthcare a human right and save billions of dollars while doing it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And that's why, so one of the things that I've really, you know, in my mind come to terms with is that, you know, so I'm an advisory council member of the People's Party. And the mm -hmm. reason why I am is because it really, so I was the person that voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 because, you know, I thought, well, the alternative is Trump, you know, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. but now, you know, four years later, five years later, when the 2020 election came around, I started realizing there was a pattern and the pattern is every four years, they place two terrible options in front of you and they tell you, 
you have to vote for me because the other guy is worse, mm-hmm. which is not, that's not a stance. That's not a policy. That's not anything except for a threat. Mm-hmm. And so I feel that it's important that we build up more parties in the United States, not just the people, I agree. but I several agree. parties, because what we have here is not normal. And when you have a duopoly, that's really a monopoly that's controlled by billionaires and corporate yep. and corporations. Yep. Right. Yep. So when you have that and you have no other options, it gives them the ability to be able to say, you have to vote for me because the other guy is worse. And I mean, I know that for some people that's enough because we're desperate, but at what point does that stop being enough? At what point do we stand up and say, you know what, scraps are no longer acceptable. We demand change. Mm -hmm. And so I do think it's going to take new parties to bring the change that we want, whether it's, you know, through uh, victories uh, electorally or whether it's through the pressure that having an alternative puts on the other two parties, either way, it's all good. And, you know, I think that's so important because one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was, um, I don't know how familiar you are with Force the Vote, but- I am familiar with it, on Medicare for All specifically? Yes, yes. Yeah, yep. Great. So, you know, for me, I, I'm a huge supporter of Force the Vote, and I felt that, you know, the progressives in Congress not using the leverage that they had was a giant mistake. Um, and, and according to them, they weren't using it because they were going to use it to get a $15 minimum wage. Which and we didn't get. Yeah, and committee seats, and both AOC and Katie Porter got denied those committee seats. They didn't get the $15 minimum wage. And now AOC is donating to corporate Democrats. So I just want to ask you, you know, what are your thoughts on what the current progressives in Congress have or have not accomplished? And what are your thoughts on force the vote? You know, I'll I'll address a second part first. I am very much in support of forcing the vote. Okay, good. And (laughs) I I think that what's critical here, when when I look at my representative, for example, in January, he sent a letter to constituents saying that he proudly co-sponsored Medicare for All. He proudly co-sponsored the Green New Deal. That's all fine and dandy. As someone who's worked on Capitol Hill, I can tell you co-sponsorship is literally the floor. It is the bare minimum you can do. All that goes into co-sponsoring a bill, let's say, let's say, if you were a member of Congress and so was I, I wanted to, spon- I wanted to co-sponsor your bill. My staff send your staff a one-sentence email saying, add my boss's name to your bill. I didn't have to help write the legislation. I didn't have to offer an amendment. I didn't even have to give you my opinion. But I get to add my name to the bill and go back to my community and give them lip service about everything I'm doing on their behalf. That is not leadership. Right. That is advocating from the sidelines. Brad Sherman has never demanded committee hearings on Medicare for All. He's never led letters with his colleagues, Speaker Pelosi, demanding a hearing on Medicare for All. He's never reached out to any of the committee chairs. And you have to remember, Medicare for All, it's referred to over four different committees. And they all have their own rules and procedures for holding hearings, taking votes, doing amendments, voting it out of the committee, to the floor, yada, yada. And so there are different ways that he can demonstrate actual commitment to Medicare for all. And he hasn't taken any of those steps. 
And I don't see the vast majority of so-called co-sponsors doing that either. They should not be given cover from the progressive wing. That, that is egregious in my mind. We have to actually put in the work to advocate for these structural reforms to come into fruition. And forcing the vote is absolutely part of that. And I say that because of how easy it is to co-sponsor. It is so low barrier. Whereas forcing the vote, it really puts people on record for what they actually support. And look, at the end of the day too, here's my opinion, even voting for Medicare for all, in an environment where you still have the filibuster in the Senate, and you have uh, Biden saying he's not gonna support Medicare for all, it could still be easy for a lot of corporate Dems to vote for it in the House, knowing it's gonna fail in the Senate, and knowing it does not have the support of the White House. So in addition to forcing the vote, we need to actually, uh, we need to require all these representatives to divest from the corporations that are financing their reelection campaigns. Because Brad can co-sponsor all he wants, but when you have weapons dealers and private prisons and commercial banks and credit card companies financing your reelection campaign and ensuring that any uh, support you give is performative and any action is meaningless, then even forcing the vote in that scenario, we have to go even further than that and say, look, we need to divest from all these corporations. You are bought and sold by the very companies that are actively lobbying against passage of these bills. And also, as someone who worked on Capitol Hill, I mean, the progressives, they got a single concession, PAYGO. And by the way, and that was only <laughs> PAYGO rules. The House ruled you still got statutory PAYGO, and you still got PAYGO in the Senate. So you're, you're, what, what did you achieve? So I also was extremely disappointed by that as well. And to your point, you know, the, the entire argument was, well, we're going to use this leverage to be able to get these votes, get on committees. That didn't happen either. So obviously the tactic is not working. Having hundreds of co-sponsors on the Green New Deal and a Medicare for All still cannot even guarantee you a hearing. So what's the point? That's why I'm saying we need to completely shift away from this focus on getting more co-sponsorships and actually focus on what's going to drive change. Divesting from corporations and forcing the vote, getting rid of the filibuster, going through all those rules change. I would rather see the progressives introduce a bill that repeals statutory paygo and force the vote on that. Because that's when the actual procedural shifts come into play. Is when we see these barricades, the bird rule in the Senate is another one. Getting rid of these kinds of procedural barriers is going to be critical. And I feel like part of the job that we need to see progressives do more and more is shed more public awareness about what these procedural delays are and how we get rid of them. Yeah, and I think that's so important. And it's like, I, I, at this point, I'm just so, I was so excited for AOC and all the progressives and congressmen. I mean, I, I volunteered, I donated, I spread the word. And I'm not going to lie, I feel really let down. And after, you know, that story came out about, you know, AOC donating to corporate Democrats, I had Brianna Joy Gray on my show and I was talking to her about it. And, you know, I told her no matter what the answer is for why this happened, I am not satisfied. Yep. If she didn't know it was happening, that is completely unacceptable because we are sending her that money to fight for Medicare for all, not to prop up people who actively fight against it. 
And if right. she did know, then, then, oh my God. So either way, I, I feel like I'm just done with her. Like there's no way that I can, I can excuse any of this anymore. And so I kind of want to ask you directly, you know, if you were to end up in Congress, would you ever donate to help corporate Democrats that stand no. against the policies that we no. support? No, no. And, and if I was ever demanded by the party to do that, I'd make it public. Nice. Okay. And be like, I'm not doing this. This is what's going on. Like, exactly. Yes. Okay. And, um, you know, I'm assuming since you agree with force the vote, you do, but I want to ask you the direct question, you know, even though we're past that force the vote speakership moment, there are going to be other moments that are going to come up with must pass bills where someone is going to need to stand up and make the uncomfortable decision of saying, you know what, we are not going to vote for this. Even if there's some good stuff in it that would help people, we are going to block everything until you give us what we actually need. And that is difficult. Are you willing to actually do that and stand up and and deny your vote unless you get the concessions that we want? I am. And the fact of the matter is, we saw that play out with the National Defense Authorization Act, which the fact that we have a bill that props up the military industrial complex each and every single year. And so often those big must pass bills, which in my mind, that shouldn't be the top of the list when it comes to must pass bills, but we can get to that point later. Yeah. A lot of times what politicians do is they attach these policy writers that make this big behemoth bill that's laden with all these terrible policies, make it look a little bit nicer and fluff it up a little bit more for certain people, and then do all this public messaging and PR campaigns about how important it is to pass this. With the NDAA, what that was is removing the name of Confederate generals on military bases. Look, you and I both want that. Everyone wants that. But at the expense of voting for a $749 billion military budget, yeah. that props billions and billions more into programs like the F-35 fighter jet program that even the Pentagon has told us is disastrous. It's ludicrous. But that's the way the system works. And that's by design. Because then if you vote no on that, everyone says, well, are you voting no on removing the name of Confederate generals? No, of course I'm not voting no on that. I'm voting no on everything else in the bill. But that's the way they, they ensure that the system does not change. And they force people to vote on things they don't vote for. And Brad Sherman did this. Brad Sherman did, and the progressives did this too. And it was honestly really frustrating to me. So last summer, I think it was Mark Pocan, uh, who introduced an amendment to reduce the military budget by 10%. You know, and a lot of progressives uh, signed on to it. Even a lot of corporate Democrats, like my uh, opponent, Brad Sherman, signed on to it. Well, that's great, but it's an amendment that everyone knew would fail. And so it was a symbolic vote. Yes, it's important to get people on the record for where they stand, but guess what? Five months later, Brad Sherman and every other corporate Democrat that voted for that amendment to cut the military budget ended up voting for the final version of that bill that not only eliminated those cuts, but increased the military budget. So what's the point of these performative measures? Nothing beyond PR. I am so sick and tired of lip service politics and absent do-nothing politicians. Put in the work. And if there are barriers, communicate that to the public. Be transparent. 
bring them on board. I, one promise I will make to you now and to all your viewers, if I'm facing challenges as an elected official, I'm, I'm facing barriers, I'm going to be as public about it as I can and say, hey, look, these are the, the obstacles in place. We need to do this, this, and this to address it. Get on the horn, call this senator, call that representative, do this, do that to get this moving forward. Because we all recognize this system is unjust. We all know this system is broken by design. So why not just be upfront with our constituents about it? Stop isolating people and just saying, no, we have it covered and giving them platitudes that do nothing to change their life. If there are obstacles in play, tell the people. Get them involved. Make it a community-driven approach. That's what co-governance is all about. Stop shying away from the obstacles and be upfront and direct about them. And do the work. Demonstrate to your constituents you are there actually advocating on their behalf. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that's so... The reason I'm so frustrated with the progressives in Congress is because I... It's because I cared and believed in them because they told us that they were going to, you know, cause a ruckus and they were going to, you know, actually fight back. And now it just feels like they've been completely absorbed by the system and they're just becoming part of it. And that's where it gets to the point where intentions stop mattering. So right. it doesn't matter if you think AOC has good or bad intentions that is immaterial if she's voting down the corporate line and if she's donating to corporate Democrats. And the fact that she can't see why we would be so angry about this just goes to show just how deeply enmeshed in the system she now is because she doesn't get it anymore. She used to get it. You know what I mean? And that's something that I'm really looking forward to a new wave of progressive candidates like yourself, like Christina Levo, like Angelica Duenas, who yep. are actually willing to put the fight in and say, you know, and, and it's something that, you know, Kyle Kalinske says, which is we thought it was enough to get people in there who agreed with us on policy. And now we realize it's not, we need leadership yep. and we need people actually willing to fight back and stand up and say, I know you're AOC and you have 11 million followers, but you're wrong on this. You're not fighting back and you need to. And somebody needs to wake them up because we're dying over here. People and, are and that's why I think you, you really hit the nail over the head because it's about the movement, right? Because candidates and legislators come and go, but it's that dedication to the work, to the policies and reforms that we need to implement, which is what carries us forward. And that's why I'm a huge, huge proponent of building solidarity across progressive candidates across the entire country, which is why, you know, I've had frequent conversation with Christina Lebo, with Jason Call. I love her. Uh, she's amazing. She's, she's <laughs> incredible, truly freaking incredible. And I, I really, really hope and know she's going to win this time. Angelica Duenas, maybe girl here in California, uh, Derek Marshall running against the Republican just north of us. I mean, so many amazing candidates. And it's like, that's how we build power. You know, because right now, only a few progressives, it's not going to bring the change we all fought for, because we still have a system that denies the policies and changes that we need to actually invest in our communities. And so building a movement of real progressives up and down the ballot, federal, state, and local elections, working collectively to say, well, we all want to implement Medicare for all. What does that look like at the federal level, the state level, and the local level? Because we have, I don't know if you know this, here in California, 
we have a bill, AB 1400, to enact single-payer Medicare for all here in California. And our campaign has been organizing uh, with various uh, local groups and organizations that are leading those efforts here in the state. Because we recognize we need to build that power up and down the ballot. We're all progressives working towards the same outcomes to actually invest in our communities, address and fix our broken healthcare system, abolish our criminal injustice system, guarantee education and housing as inherent human rights. We're all trying to fight for the same values. I think we need to build power collectively to be able to really not only speak truth to power, but amass power on behalf of working people up and down this country. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I, I want to get into what's going on locally in your area. Let me ask you one last question before I get into that. Um, the Cuban embargo, what is your stance on that? I think it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. It needs yeah. to be eliminated. Thank you. Thank I mean, you. Yeah. Um, okay, so now let me ask you locally, in your district, in the 30th district of California, um, tell me about what is it that the current rep has or has not done that made you feel like, you know what, he's not handling this and I need to run. What are the biggest challenges in your district and what solutions do you have for those challenges? Absolutely. Um, and we, I touched on this a little bit, but just to recap and bring it back to um, the forefront, we have five unhoused neighbors die per day in Los Angeles. Housing is by far the most critical issue in our communities. And we have a city that to this day has refused to request federal reimbursement from FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, to shelter our unhoused in hotels for the duration of the pandemic, even though on his first day in office, Biden authorized FEMA to give local governments 100% federal reimbursement, meaning not a dime is coming out of the pockets of taxpayers here in LA. It's free federal monies to shelter our unhoused. We had 66,000 unhoused residents in LA County before COVID-19. And you can imagine with tens of thousands of Angelinos losing their jobs, losing their health care, unable to afford rent in a city where over two thirds of our residents are renters, the least we could do is guarantee shelter during a pandemic that has disproportionately impacted our unhoused community. UCLA came out with a study last month showing that unhoused Angelinos are 50% more likely to die from COVID-19 if contracted as a result of being unhoused. But instead of services, instead of housing, instead of healthcare, our city is investing in criminalization. It's investing in displacement. It's investing in arrests. It's investing in violence. We saw LAPD over 60 squad cars and five helicopters costing the city of LA more than a million dollars for just two to three days for them to go into Echo Park and violently displace our unhoused residents, a community that was taking care of each other. They established their own union. They had built their own community gardens. They had built their own showers because the state had failed them. And instead of delivering care, we violently displaced them. And this is happening up and down the city from here in the valley to South LA. We're seeing these sweeps, they're called sweeps, where under the guise of public health, city sanitation comes into these unhoused encampments and gives folks 15 minutes to pack their stuff and move 
before it's all ransacked by the city? What if a tractor showed up outside of your house and told you you had 15 minutes to gather your stuff and leave before everything is destroyed? I've seen this with my own eyes, where the city comes in and tears down people's homes, tears down people's tents, rips through their community gardens. It's disgraceful. It's disgusting. People are dying from this trauma. And our legislator, Brad Sherman, is literally the guy that can do something about this. I don't just say that because he's a federal rep. I say that because he chairs the Investor Protection, Entrepreneurship, and Capital Markets Subcommittee on Financial Services. That subcommittee has jurisdiction over our federal housing finance laws and over authorizing new affordable housing programs and over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And as soon as he became chair, BlackRock and Blackstone, the asset management and private equity firms that are exacerbating our housing crisis nationwide and buying up a fifth of homes across the country, they started bankrolling his reelection campaign. And on top of that, as I shared earlier, we're living here in the city in a district that is nearly 40% Latinx. Yeah, we have countless undocumented neighbors living under constant fear of ICE raids and deportation. We have an ICE budget over $8 billion, while our funding for immigration and asylum courts are a fraction of that, 5%. Again, budgets reflecting priorities, where the investment is in militarization and incarceration and deportation, not healing, not a humanitarian immigration system. And it's, it's completely agree. And all of this is happening on Brad Sherman's watch. We have thousands of residents that are underinsured or completely uninsured. And we don't see him doing anything to push for Medicare all at the federal level. As I shared earlier, we are a safely progressive district. Bernie won our district overwhelmingly during the presidential primary. There is zero excuse to not take the bold action we need to address the structural issues in our community. We have food lines stretching for blocks. We have environmental racism that is so terrible where living in Watts in South LA, you have a life expectancy 12 years less than in West Los wow. Angeles. 12 years less than West Los Angeles. We have over a thousand abandoned oil wells spewing noxious chemicals into our Black and Latinx neighborhoods. We have 2.7 million Californians living less than 2,500 feet from an oil and gas well here in California. And just today, on Earth Day, we had a natural gas leak in Downey that was just reported. Each and every single day, we are seeing the toxic impacts of environmental racism, where your zip code dictates your access to essential necessities, from education, to living wage employment, to housing, to healthcare. On none of those issues have we seen actual leadership from Brad Sherman, ever. Yeah, and it's, that's, that's uh, those facts that you just told me about the life expectancy, that is astonishing. That is, that is just incredible. And it just goes to show depending on what community you live in, 
is what resources you get. It's not nope. all spread out evenly. It does have to do with money and who's got it. And we're killing Americans with all this bullshit. So, um, Shervin, I mean, there's so much more that we could talk about. I'd actually love to have you uh, back on sometime to talk more. I'd love um, to be back. You know, but before we go, uh, you know, give uh, our audience any final thoughts that you have and tell them where they can find you and how they can support your campaign. Absolutely. I mean, one thing I really want to share is that our campaign is, is focused on building a new political coalition of young people, people of color, immigrants that are dedicated to achieving the structural reforms we need to uplift and empower working people, dismantle white supremacy and end corporate welfare. We're focused on building a movement, which is why I want to, again, really emphasize how one of our hopes and goals for our campaign is building solidarity among progressives up and down the ballot, which is why I've also been in really close communication with a lot of progressives running for city council here in LA, running for state assembly. There is a sea change coming. And we're all trying to energize voters and say, look, the focus is on the policies because that's what impacts people's lives. That's what leads to change. And we here as candidates, our job is to elevate and uplift your voices and do your work in Congress and in any elected office. You know, our campaign, we launched just about uh, three months ago, and it's been so amazing seeing the outpouring of support and how excited people are here in our district for change and how receptive our message is. Because co-governance is at the very center of what we're trying to achieve. Uh, our, our website is shervinforthevalley.com. You can use either the number four or spell it out, F-O-R. Our Twitter handle is Azami Shervin. Instagram is reverse Shervin Azami. Um, please follow us. Please reach out to us. If there are policies you want us to champion, please, please, please reach out to us. Uh, we also have community endorsements on our page uh, because, you know, we proudly refuse any corporate PAC money. We proudly refuse lobbyist money. I've taken everything from the no fossil fuel money pledge to the no cop money pledge, to the patients over profits pledge, to the code pink pledge, divesting from our military industrial complex. These are not just empty promises. They are the codes by which our campaign is constructed. They're the very foundation of why we're running. And we'd love folks to get involved. Please donate to our campaign. Please sign up. Uh, and please reach out to us. We want to hear from you about the issues you want to see your legislators champion. Um, it's one thing that we've really implemented are, you know, meet and greets with voters and their family and friends and network. Talk about the issues they care about and the changes we need to achieve at the federal level, the state level and the local level. So it's, um, we're really proud of, of our campaign um, and we're really excited about the future. That's fantastic. Shervin, thank you so much for being with us here today. Everybody, that was Shervin Asami. He is a congressional candidate for California's 30th district. Check out his Twitter, check out his website and get involved. We definitely need progressives like you in Congress. Uh, Shervin, it's been a pleasure. We'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me on, Elise. Enjoy the rest of your day. Look forward Thanks. to being on again. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. That was our interview with Shervin Azami. Uh, you know, I really liked the stuff that he was saying uh, about 
uh, about forcing the vote, about being willing to withhold your vote, uh, you know, to deal with uh, these people that just aren't going to give us anything. So thank you guys so much for tuning in today. If you watched us on Rockfin, you guys are amazing. We just got on Rockfin after being censored by YouTube. Thanks to our buddy Graham Elwood for helping us get on here. Um, he's been amazing through all this and super supportive. Uh, so go ahead and subscribe to our Rockfin. Rockfin is 100% free to use. I have a ton of exclusive content on Rockfin, both free and premium, that you can't find anywhere else. So go ahead and subscribe and follow us on Rockfin. Show your support. I do want to let you guys know uh, you can go to our Annalise.com website. You can sign up for our newsletter to find out when we are doing interviews like this one today. And I'm just going to scroll through here. You guys can see our interview with Shervin right there. You can uh, click on different uh, interviews that you want to watch. We interviewed Brianna Joy Gray. It was fantastic. You can find all of our links here at our link tree. Uh, and if you want to support us, here are different ways that you can do so. And over here are our news and events where we will let you know of any upcoming shows that we have. So we do have one show coming up today at 5 p.m. Pacific Pacific time, 8 p.m. Eastern. I have been asked to be the co-host of the People's Party podcast, which is fantastic. So we're going to be streaming that. And we're also going to be streaming it to my Rockman. So tune in at 5 p.m. Pacific time today. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, climate change with some climate youth activists. It's going to be fantastic. We will see you guys then. Again, you guys, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time.